The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. A happy belated Thanksgiving to you all. Hope you were able to connect with some family and some friends and get some food and that you've got some extra gratitude in your hearts this morning. I want to welcome all of you, especially our visitors. I see a lot of new faces out there. Uh, I want to welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ to the Springs this morning. And I want to remind you that uh, next Sunday, December 3rd, is the first Sunday of the season we call Advent. Uh, So we will be beginning Advent, the joy of the Lord, here at the Springs next Sunday. And Advent is a wonderful time if you've never celebrated or observed this season. It's a time when the church uh, prepares their hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ, both celebrating his incarnation at Christmas and anticipating his return in the second coming. And it's a wonderful, wonderful time of year that I always look forward to. And uh, this year, I will be taking my last few weeks of preaching rest in December. Uh, That's something Ben and I are grateful to get to do, uh, to take a little time off from the day-to-day of preaching and kind of look long-term with some series planning and prep for the next year. And so I'm looking forward to doing that and focusing in on the worship ministry. But the good news is, That means there'll be a couple of excellent guest speakers here in December. Uh, The first one being next Sunday, December 3rd, and that'll be Brandon Tatum. He is the president of Oklahoma Christian Academy. He's going to be really wonderful. And then on December 16, uh, a real treat for those of you who know him, uh, Dr. Charles Ricks will be joining us to preach to us on the third Sunday of Advent. So I hope you'll make a point of being here at the Springs during Advent. It really is one of my favorite times of year together. But this morning, we are finishing Luke. And as I say, pretty much every time we wind down a sermon series, I know I personally have been challenged and encouraged and inspired by my encounters with the Word of God in the Gospel of Luke. And I truly hope that you all can say the same for yourselves, that you will carry this study with you. And we're finishing up this morning with the resurrection. In Luke 24, we're in verses 13 through 35 this morning together. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. God, once again, we give thanks for this morning. We give thanks for the resurrection, the reason we meet Sunday morning. God, we give thanks for a new day, a new opportunity to open up your scriptures and see more of you. I ask God that your spirit would open these scriptures to us and give us a fuller recognition of who it is you are in Jesus Christ. God, bless me with the gift of preaching. Bless us with your Holy Spirit as you illuminate to us the truth of your good news. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In my totally unbiased not because I'm about to preach it opinion. This is the best story in Luke. It's a fabulous story. It could maybe be given a run for its money by the prodigal son, but I think this is hands down the best because it really represents the pinnacle of Luke's storytelling abilities. It is so quintessentially Luke in every way with the journey motif that we've seen throughout the gospel, with that literary skill in which he relays it, with that building irony that seems to get weightier with every successive verse. It's, it's such a rich text, I truly feel like we could preach an entire series on it, which I know is a statement that makes everyone a little bit nervous. But in truth, uh, it is a wonderful text. 
And before we dig any deeper into this wonderful text, I want to focus on just a very small detail, something that's seemingly insignificant that we would probably just skip over, but I want to spend a little time on it because I think it has great importance. Take a look at verse 18. Luke says, then one of them whose name was Cleopas answered him. You might have noticed that on the road to Emmaus, there's two travelers, and one of them is not named, but the other one has a name, Cleopas. Why is that? Why does Luke give us the name of one of the travelers and not the other one? Well, that kind of leads me to want to step back and ask a little bit broader question of why are some characters in the Gospels named? Have you ever wondered that? Why, why do some Gospel characters have names? Well, there are characters in the Gospels that we would expect to have names, such as public figures, right? Herod and Pilate and John the Baptist, people who would have been known outside the Gospels. And then there are the apostles who we would expect to be remembered and named. They're pretty important as these gospel traditions were handed down, Peter, James, John, etc. But then there are plenty of other characters that don't have names, right? So most of the characters that Jesus heals are unnamed in the gospels. Most of the characters that encounter Jesus once and don't become a disciple, they're typically unnamed. And there are characters so insignificant we would never expect them to have a name. That if we were casting the Gospels as a play, they'd just be called Pharisee or Galilean number five. But there are characters in this same category of insignificance that do have names, right? People who are healed aren't normally named, but we've got Bartimaeus, we have Jairus, whose daughter is named, we have Lazarus. People who encounter Jesus once aren't typically named, but Ben preached in Luke 7 a couple months ago, and Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And then this morning, we've got a companion, and we've got Cleopas. Why are they named? Just Cleopas. Well, some scholars of the more skeptical brand have said, well, these names were just kind of added as the traditions went on, these fictitious names just kind of attached to these little characters out of a kind of novelistic interest in these individual minor characters. That was a pretty common Jewish practice in reading and commenting on Scripture, but the problem is the gospel evidence says just the opposite, that for instance, if Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke built on Mark, which most scholars agree upon, we don't find any unnamed characters in Mark that receive a name in Matthew and Luke. There's not a single unnamed character in the Gospel of Mark that gets an added name later on. So why the names? Well, Richard Bauckham has proposed this about these named insignificant characters. That these characters have names because they became early Christians. These named characters were early Christians that joined the early Christian movement and were known to the people compiling the gospel traditions. 
And because they were known and could be named by the people compiling the gospel traditions, it seems likely that these characters are named because they were the first ones telling the stories. They were the first ones to tell and retell this story, this eyewitness experience that they had with Jesus Christ, and that's why their names are attached to these stories. We have Cleopas because he is an eyewitness to the risen Jesus Christ. And isn't this exactly what Luke says all the way back in chapter 1? The first four verses, he says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I, too, decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you've been instructed. Cleopas is named because he told the story of when he saw Jesus Christ risen. But he didn't recognize him right away, did he? As Luke tells Cleopas' story in chapter 24, he says that they're both walking to Emmaus and that while they're talking and discussing, Jesus himself comes near and he went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? How heavy is that irony in this passage? Particularly verse 18, Cleopas is talking to Jesus Christ, and he says, Are you the only guy who doesn't know what's going on around here? Have you been to Jerusalem? They crucified somebody. He's talking with Jesus. And I have to imagine that Cleopas, in looking back on this moment, must have shook his head and maybe chuckled to himself. It's, it's almost like Elmer Fudd talking about hunting rabbits with Bugs Bunny. I mean, it's that level of dramatic irony that we actually get to have because we have more information than the characters in the story. And it really, uh, he, he tells him what's going on. Jesus says, what things? Jesus, the ever patient teacher, asking a question. And they talk about Jesus being killed, the one who they thought would redeem Israel. And these women who've now been to the tomb that's empty. And the irony reaches a, a fever pitch in verse 24 when Cleopas says, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him, he says, looking at Jesus. And then Jesus responds. And as is sometimes his custom, Jesus begins one of his most gentle, substantive portions of teaching with a slight rebuke. He says, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. 
Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus says, you think that the Messiah dying disqualifies him? The scriptures call it a prerequisite. The scriptures say it had to happen this way, and then he begins with Moses and all the prophets and speaks of all the things that speak of himself in the scriptures. Beginning what I believe is probably one of the greatest Bible studies to ever take place on earth. Wouldn't you just love to be there with Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus? Wouldn't you just love to hear him explicate the Old Testament scriptures and how they speak directly of and to him? Particularly because the Old Testament is not an easy read. All right, the Old Testament, I say this as someone who's part of my job is to read the Old Testament, it's not often easy. It's a strange and difficult text at times with strange and difficult stories far removed from our time and place and even our moral sensibilities. It's difficult for us sometimes to read it well. And sometimes there even feels like a tension between this Old Testament and the New Testament, like maybe we need to pick between one or the other. And in fact, there's been an American megachurch pastor recently who's been kind of flirting with this idea, who in a sermon recently said we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Now, he probably said it with a lot more nuance in the whole context. But he also wrote this in an article. He said, we need to stop mixing the old with the new. The church has a terrible habit of selectively rebranding aspects of the old covenant and smuggling them into the new. The blended model began as early as the second century when church leaders essentially kidnapped the Jewish scriptures and claimed them as their own. Now on some level, I understand the impulse that leads to this idea. Like I said, I understand what it's like to read through the Old Testament, to find a strange passage, to read it and think, how in the world did this wind up in the Christian Bible? Right? I understand that, but I assure you that this inclination, this temptation to unhitch from the Old Testament is Christianity's oldest, most pernicious heresy. This is our oldest temptation to try and leave the Old Testament behind, to try and have Jesus without Israel, to try and have Jesus without his Jewishness, has always been a temptation for the church from the very beginning of the early church to Nazi Germany. It's a temptation. But rather than unhitch from the Old Testament, I think what the risen Jesus points us toward in Luke 24 is that instead of unhitching from the Old Testament, we need to listen to the linchpin. If a hitch is holding two things together, a trailer and a truck, 
the linchpin, that one single bar holding it all together, is the key for keeping it intact. And rather than unhitch from the Old Testament, we need to listen to the linchpin, what's holding it all together, the risen Jesus Christ, who goes all the way back to the beginning, to Moses and the prophets, and says, all of this speaks to me. And if you're not reading it in light of me, you're not reading it well. We don't need to unhitch. We've got to look closely at the linchpin. Jesus wants to take us back to the first verse of Genesis and show us how he's on every single page. We don't need to unhitch. We need to look closely with the risen Jesus at the linchpin himself. Oh, how I long to read scripture with the risen Jesus. And so do Cleopas and his companion. It seems clear, right? Because when Jesus makes like he's going to go on and continue, they're like, no, 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 stay with us. It's late. Come on. Come on inside. And Jesus walks in and says when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he was talking to us on the road while he was opening the scriptures to us? Once again, for those of you who have been able to be here for the whole Luke sermon series, we find Jesus ministering at a table through a meal. We saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners we saw him anointed by a sinful woman at a table. We saw him establish the Lord's Supper. And now, here again, Jesus is ministering at a meal. Why does he do that so often? Why is Jesus always doing kingdom work at meals? For thousands and thousands of years, God's people have been telling the story of how sin and death entered the world, and when God's people tell the story of how sin and death entered the world, they always start in the same place, the Old Testament, no less, at the Bible's first meal. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. This is the story we've been telling over and over again about the woes of the human race. This is God's story about the beginning of sin and death and decay and evil. Taking the fruit, giving it, eating it, and the eyes are opened. 
And so when Luke tells Cleopas' story about Emmaus Road, he says it like this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. In this moment, the eyes of Cleopas and his companion are open not to the sting of death, but to the one who overcame it. In this moment, the eyes of Cleopas and his companion are open not to the fall of creation, but to the fall of creation giving way to new creations rising. In this very moment, Emmaus has overcome Eden. Emmaus has overcome Eden, and the Bible's first meal has been overturned in the breaking of the bread by Jesus Christ. And now, the resurrection for us means that our eyes, once open to sin, can be opened yet again to the reality of who the risen Jesus is. Our eyes, once open to death, can be opened yet again to new life in the risen Jesus Christ. We can be open to new resurrection possibilities. And those possibilities only become available when one thing happens, when we recognize Jesus for who he is. When we recognize Jesus as the risen Son of God, the anointed one of God. When we recognize him as the one who would redeem Israel, God himself. That's what happens when Emmaus overcomes Eden. And now we come here this morning to our own meal, to our own version of Emmaus. And we come here and perhaps some of you have never really fully recognized Jesus for who he is. Perhaps you've never really seen him. Your eyes have been opened to sin and death, but they've never been opened again to new life in Christ. Perhaps even now your hearts are burning within you, not because I'm opening the scriptures to you, but because the spirit of Jesus Christ is opening the scriptures, is speaking to you. If that's you, I pray that this morning you would come forward and that you would receive that grace anew and for the first time at the tables. I want to invite you all to come forward to the tables this morning. And when you come, I don't want you to serve the bread to yourself. I want you to serve it to someone else. And when you serve it to someone else, I want you to say, Christ is risen. And if you receive the bread, I want you to say, Christ is risen indeed. Everything changes at Emmaus. Everything changes when we see Jesus for the first time with clear and open eyes for the salvation that he brings, the redemption of Israel and the world.
So may Jesus be made known to you in the breaking of the bread. May our souls magnify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in God as we come forward this morning to the tables. Come forward, church.